Hi, I'm Lori. And I'm Andrea. We're excited to welcome you to the We Should Probably Talk About That podcast. We are so happy to have you here with us, and we can't wait to make it awkward. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the We Should Probably Talk About That podcast. Hello, hello. Hello. We're so glad to have you guys back. How are you? I'm good. Good? Yeah. I hear you've got lots of listener questions today. We're doing a follow-up episode. <clears throat> I did. So a couple weeks ago, we aired Addiction and Recovery. And I had a lot of, I had several questions come in. And then I asked also, <clears throat> excuse me. I asked also on stories, um, just if anyone had any questions and some more questions trickled in. So yeah. so for the, just to really stop really quick. For those of you that haven't listened to that episode, Andrea shared a beautiful story about how she was an at-home mom and developed an addiction to alcohol and how she's been clean officially four years now. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. And these are follow-up questions for that. So let's share them because I think there's, you know, a lot of people that want some answers. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just, I was just telling Lori, like, you think I would have thought about answers and I've had some time to go through these, but I really haven't formulated. I have a couple notes jotted down about a couple things, but, um, this is just going to be kind of coming straight from whatever shooting from the hip, if you yeah. will. Cause, yeah. cause I didn't write down much about my responses. So, um, and with, with, let's just say this too, with it being such an important subject, especially I think in the light of, you know, twitches taking his own life and lots of people being impacted mm-hmm. through suicide. I, I think it does a huge value to share the answers to these questions. So for those people that sent these in, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's start. been good to engage with people. And I think that this is kind of one of those topics where it's like some people do kind of wait for opportunities to like, wait, let me see if someone else is struggling true, before I say so that I'm struggling. In shame. Yeah. So yeah. wrapped in shame. So question number one says, you mentioned having suicidal thoughts before you got help. I hear a lot that people say that they stay for their kids or they could never do that to their kids. Okay. So they stay alive Alive. for their kids. Curious what your thoughts were about your kids when you didn't want to live anymore. That's a good question because, um, really my kids were always the thing in the back of my mind that kept me wanting to stay alive. Yeah. But then I think I got so deep in my struggle with addiction that I had, I convinced myself when I was, when I was numbing out and kind of talking myself off a ledge or when I'd wake up, I think I mentioned I'd wake up in the middle of the night and jot down notes in my phone about how I was feeling. I think during those, the hardest times, the darkest times of, of my struggle, I convinced myself that my kids would be better off without me, that I was ruining their childhood, that they deserved a better and more present mom. And they did, they deserved, they deserved way more than they got from me at that time. Um, so, so at that point you're thinking my husband's great with them. He'll just raise them and I'm the anchor and it'd be better if I was just gone. Yeah, it was. Yeah. yeah. And, and I thought, you know, he'll remarry and find someone that Aww. doesn't struggle and they'll, you know, they'll be sad. They'll be shocked, you know, and I wasn't, I, I never figure, I never planned a way to take my own life, but I did get to the point where I was like, if alcohol takes me, it'll be, it'll relief. be better. Wow. in the long run. So, wow. so yeah, I, I did think about my kids all the time, but it was never, it was always that 
that I, it was self beat up. Like, no, they'll be, they'll be better if, if this did take me. Um, that makes so much sense because I think I've shared after my second divorce, my baby was three months old and it was pretty damn dark for me too. Yeah. And I remembered thinking, I just can't take the pain anymore. I want to be gone. And they're the ones that saved me, my kids. Mm -hmm. But that was just me wanting to tap out with you you could see the ramifications of what this disease was doing to you. And you thought just to eliminate out of their lives would make it better. Isn't yeah. that interesting that, because I think that's probably how people see it. Like, well, Andrea, didn't you love your kids? Because right. loving your kids would make you want to be Yeah, around. like I felt a little bit shamed with that question when yeah. I first read it. But yeah. I know that wasn't the intention. But yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a lot of memories from those years, but... You know, I did have, I do have some memories of like laying on the floor with my daughter to read with her. Yeah. And cause my kids were, you know, they all read 30 minutes a night or whatever. And so I, I remember trying to stay structured with homework and reading and bedtime and stuff, but I would just pass out, you know, oh. and I, I do have some memories of my daughter trying to wake, wake me you. up and I would just say like, oh man, I'm so tired, but really I was, Aww. I was blacking out and yeah. So yeah, there was a lot of like my kids deserve so much better than this. And that makes at sense. the time I didn't see it as I need to get better. I saw it as I need to be gone so their so they dad can, can be find better. better. Yeah. Oh, that breaks yeah. my heart. <clears throat> um so yeah, that's and you know, and I had a therapist tell me when I would talk about everything that I hated about myself when I was drinking this therapist she said she said alcohol is a liar like you need to you need to make alcohol like envision it as a person that's telling you these lies because when you're when you're that deep into self-medicating everything you tell yourself is going to be the very worst things about you because wow. there is so much shame surrounding addiction so just remember that they're lies they're lies that alcohol is telling you and I think that was one of the biggest ones for me was like your kids need you Gone. Gone so yeah. that they can be happy. And so. you in your mind were doing a selfless thing saying, I'll sacrifice myself for the good of my kids. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think, you know, we've talked, we talked about this when Twitch passed away that like a lot of people who have suicidal ideation, they, they don't actually want to die. It's, it's not like I'm going to end my life and be done. It's, I want, and I want any life, but this one, I don't want to die, but I don't want to do this anymore. And I don't see a way out. Yeah. And I think if there ever was suicidal thoughts in me, it was suicidal ideation where it was like, I got to be free from this, this life. I need something different, but I don't know how to get out of this. So, yeah, I understand that from where I was. I, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Another question is, did you, or do you still have a sponsor? Um, I do not have a sponsor. Um, I did have a sponsor for a while and I did step work. And sponsor with AA is like a buddy, right? <clears throat> like, yeah, it's another, a person who's it's another been alcoholic, who, yeah, a mentor. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And it's always same gender. They want genders to stick together. Oh, okay. Um, so yeah, I had a sponsor who she was, I think she was nine or 10 years sober, clean and sober. She had a pretty serious drug addiction as well. She'd been to prison several times. Oh, wow. Um, she married a guy who was also sober 
they have a couple kids now, so they completely turn their lives around. But yeah, she was pretty deep, deep in addiction. And, um, yeah, it just, it was just kind of one of those things where I, uh, you know, I realized what I needed from the program and I took what I needed and I did, I did what was best for me. And, you know, my about one year sober mark was, I was six months separated at that point and really the phenomenon of craving that they call it in AA was completely gone for me. Um, and then the pandemic hit. So meetings went to zoom and it just wasn't something that I, that I got into. Um, and then it was, around then that I sold my house and moved and got a job and went back to school. And so, sure. so yeah, I do, I don't have a sponsor anymore. They also asked, do you, have you ever had sponsees? So have I ever been a sponsor? I've never had sponsees. It just didn't feel like something I was willing to give up time with my kids. Yeah. To, Cause your babies are so small. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you say you don't think you're an alcoholic. How do you really know? Also, when you talked about the cage, it sounds like the California cage was really hard for you. Do you think you would have had the same struggle if you'd never moved or gotten married? Hmm. Wow. That's a, that's a big one. Um, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a hard one. I guess I don't really know yeah, if I'm an alcoholic. I, I read something when I was just weeks sober that said I'd rather live my life sober, believing that I'm an alcoholic rather than live my life drinking, trying to convince myself that I'm not. Mm. And I, I kind of live by that where it's like, I, my struggle was significant enough that I hope I always have a healthy fear of alcohol. I hope I remember what hangovers feel like. I hope I remember the embarrassment that I felt when I was, you know, completely intoxicated. Um, and, and, you know, in the program, they say, like, if you get hit by a train, you're not getting killed by the caboose. You're getting killed by the first car. Yeah. It's that first drink. It's going back to that first drink. And so, so I, I think to maybe oversimplify my, where I am now with my thoughts on it, I would say, yeah, I have an addictive personality and I struggled with an addiction to alcohol. So I, I'm not, it's, it's not like, no, I just don't want people to call me an alcoholic or it feels weird to say, hi, I'm Andrea and I'm an alcoholic. I don't have any shame shame surrounding that. Yeah. Um, so the way I see it and tell me if this resonates or not, as you're talking about it. And then this person mentioned the cage and what, what have you, and what you shared with us on the last episode, I almost picture it like imagine a person with a tumor right? Mm-hmm. And your body's sickly and it's sucking your energy and all of the things. And it's very much a toxic thing in your body that your body is fighting. And then the minute the tumor is removed, your body heals. Mm-hmm. And I almost feel like California and your marriage and your chameleon life, which is another episode we did early on, all of that was like the tumor. Yeah. And the minute you removed that, it was just easy. Mm-hmm. Not that it was easy. I don't want to oversimplify that, but yeah, no, but that's, that's kind of good... what it feels like. Yeah. Right? It was like this very toxic environment, like, you know, tumors or a cancer or whatever is eating you from the inside out and all the things mm-hmm. and killing your cells. And the minute you were able to realize, I don't want to be married to this individual. I don't want to be part of this life anymore. 
it made the craving go away and yeah. it made it made the awful ugly cell eating whatever go yeah. away yeah that's a really good that's a good way to look at it a good wow. analogy yeah um and I, so i can't really answer that because if i hadn't gotten married and moved to california yeah that's so hard who knows yeah you know Some, maybe something I, here could have been yeah changed, you know yeah yeah so yeah. it's just just my story and it was my experience and i don't know yeah. I don't know what would have happened. So, yeah. but, but talking a little bit about the cage, like I, I got quite a bit of feedback about people really being fascinated with that rat park and the rat in isolation. Sure. And since we aired that, I listened to something else and I didn't, it was like a TikTok made by a TikToker who TikToked someone else's thing. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't find the source of this information, but yeah. So I, I jotted down a couple notes about this and I'm, it's kind of fascinating. It kind of gives just another perspective on the idea of chemical hooks and what actually happens to our brains when we struggle with addiction. Yeah. Um, and in this, in this video that I watched, they said that regular drinking and regular drinking means like, it doesn't mean every day, but it's like okay, once a week I have wine with dinner and then I drink every weekend. Like that's considered regular drinking. It could be, I only drink Saturdays, but I get drunk every Saturday. Like that's a regular drinking routine. Yeah. Um, and, and anything that's like a regular drinking routine changes the, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis that results in more cortisol being produced, which is a stress, stress hormone. hormone. Yeah, we all and, know that. And it's released at baseline when they're not drinking. So so this study is saying that if somebody has a regular drinking routine, yeah. even if they you know, they don't have to have it on weeknights, they only allow it on the weekends, they only allow yeah. it twice a week, one glass of wine at dinner, whatever it is, that if you do have a regular pattern of drinking, that that stress hormone releases more in somebody who has a regular drinking wow. pattern as opposed to somebody who just like, like once a month I'll have a glass of wine or on Christmas Eve and yeah. on my birthday yeah. I drink or whatever it is. And so that kind of, kind of contradicts rat park and like the cage being the, the issue as opposed to like a, an addiction, an addictive hook. Right. Um, but, but, you know, he goes on to talk about like, so if you do have a regular drinking pattern, when you are not drinking, you're naturally going to feel more stress and anxiety because your body's producing more of that. And, you know, and then like whenever, whenever I hear someone, this is a weird thing for me because I really am not triggered by alcohol. You drink on occasion, right? Like I don't ever have friends where I'm like, Oh, I gotta be really careful. Cause I heard her say she had a glass of wine or yeah. I heard her. Yeah. I, I'm not, I don't tell people they should quit. I don't assume when I think someone has a problem, but if somebody, if I'm talking to somebody and they say, Oh my gosh, this day was so stressful. I need a drink. I feel a little bit like, Ooh, don't, don't drink because you think you need it. Yeah, yeah. Like alcohol should not be that. Yeah, to break a bad day. And because we don't, we look at you know we only look at like the the this type of effect like this cortisol release. It's not looked at as like a long term side effect of drinking. We just look at like the immediate 
benefits or the immediate side effects or whatever it is. And, and I have drank before where it's like, what a horrible day I need a drink. And I do feel really, I did feel relief temporarily. Like, oh, really, I'm relaxed. I joke about it, but I, I don't really keep alcohol in the house that much if, if at all. So I, you know, I joke like, oh my God, I need a drink tonight. But, but, then but you that's don't interesting really that it does it. take that edge off. Yeah. I mean, and it, it makes sense. And it can, but it, but if you're looking at alcohol as like, I need alcohol so that I can feel comfortable at this party. I need to do a shot before yeah. I go into this meeting. Yeah. I am excited about this date, but I'm going to need a drink at dinner so that I can be myself yeah. or whatever that. Yeah. Well, and it sounds like what they say about Diet Coke. Drinking Diet Coke makes you crave sugar, they say. So it's like drinking alcohol kicks the stress hormone, which makes you want to drink more. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So so while I say I would never tell someone to quit or I, you know, assume that they have a problem, I had a friend say to me, like, what what are you going to do? Because my kid's dad drinks and his that side of my kid's family drinks and this friend said, what are you, what's it going to be like for you when your kids are old enough that if they could try, try alcohol, they can. And I don't know, I've let myself get really fearful of that. Yeah. But I'm also not gonna, I think the more you try to ingrain something in your kids, like, no, look at what it did to me. Don't ever do it. Don't ever do it. Right. It's going to pique their curiosity. Right. I'm like, well, it did that to my mom, but yeah. my dad seems okay. And my dad wants to have a beer with me. And so it's just going to be whatever it is. But I, I think like at, at my core with the experiences I've had and the damage that I've seen it do, I think that my true feelings are the sooner people can see that there really are no good benefits, benefits of yeah. alcohol, yeah. the better. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I got way off track. I can't even remember what question No, but I was that's super up. helpful. Super helpful. They were, we were talking about Rat Park. Oh, yeah. And that's what he said. You were in a cage. You know, <clears throat> yeah. So I think it can be both. I think it can be heightened when you're in a cage of isolation. And I also do believe in this stress-producing. I, I agree. And I really think you leaving California helped your success rate. Mm-hmm. Oh, because yeah. they say with addicts, you like you said with, with the grocery store on our episode about that, I'd go in a different door just to change it up. And yeah. I'm sure being in the same environment around the same people drinking at the, at the annual Christmas party with everyone drinking, and it would have been so much easier to slip back in because it's always around you. Whereas you've come up here, we hang out with a lot of people that don't drink, that are sober, and it just it's easier, you yeah. know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't hide like... I'll say, you know, I had a glass of wine and, yeah. and you don't go, please don't tell me or, you know, no. it's not like, like that. Did you really need it, Lori? Did you really need it? <laughs> yeah, no, you know. Um, yeah. Next question. What was your poison of choice? This is, <laughs> this is from one of my smart ass friends in it was California. Wine, right? It was wine. I think she means like, what, what wine did I drink? Because but I, red. <laughs> you said you went from sweet, I went from sweet to white dry red. to dry red. Dry red is disgusting. And this, and she also mentioned like, I can't believe how much money you used to spend on alcohol. And it's true. So in California, they sell wine at the grocery store. So I started on cheap stuff. Like they have this wine at Trader Joe's called Charles Shaw. And they, it's like two twenty nine a bottle. They call it no way. They call it two buck Chuck. Yeah. I've heard of two buck Chuck (laughs) in general. So I would drink that. Aldi has an owl something wine that was super cheap. You would think that as my problem got worse, 
I wouldn't care. I would just buy the cheap Your stuff. Your taste in wine's changed. <laughs> but yeah, my palate refined and exactly. I got a little bougie. You were bougie. <laughs> So how much was one bottle of So your the wine poison? that I drank, the, the two, two kinds of wine, why are we talking about this? The two kinds of wine I drank were called Apothic Crush and... Ap- that sounds like an energy drink. <laughs> Apothic <laughs> Crush and Menage Trois Silk. Oh. Those were my two, and they were between 8 to $10 a bottle. So That I was, still seems cheap. Yeah, it wasn't bougie bougie. Yeah. I could... I could chug a $100 bottle of wine just as easy as Yeah, because I've a- picked up a bottle of wine here yeah. in Utah. We have liquor stores, so you we have do. to go to a specific <laughs> yeah. store. And I usually am in the like $15 to $20 yeah. range. Yeah, so I was spending about between $16 to $20 a day if I was on two bottles. Crazy. So yeah, it was, it was more than $500 a month. So... You there you had, go. You could have had a really cute wardrobe for that. Don't, don't do it. But if you are, menage a silk and apothic crush. You just want them to sponsor us, don't you? And we don't that mean that awesome. kind of sponsor. Yeah, like literally pay me. I'll do an ad for you. <laughs> Speaking of paying, is AA really free? It is, so, isn't it? It is free. Um, they do pass around a collection basket plate basket usually at every meeting they are completely self-sustained they don't take outside contributions they don't Uh uh-uh. i didn't know that none so you can't donate no at all. i mean and they are very specific about anonymity they don't wow. advertise and say please support aa at such and such a building it's all passing that basket around and wow. you know and it there are some people there that are like on the streets trying to get sober and they have zero dollars. And so you don't have to put anything in. Um, I usually put anywhere from two to five dollars a meeting. When I was going every day, I'd put one to two dollars because I didn't. I, I had a lot of extra money. So I, I was five hundred dollars wine budget. Yeah, but you yeah. were spending wine money and now you just turned to donate. Yeah, I would say my average ended up probably being about three dollars a meeting that I would give. Yeah. Um, I noticed when I went to this meeting last month that they have a Venmo QR code now, so you can Venmo, but it's, if you're at the meeting, they ask for a small donation. It's not required. So do Al-Anon and, and, you know, Everyone, like, all they of can the, donate to mm-hmm. the parents or yeah. whatever. Okay. And they've just been self-sustained like that for all, forever. That's very cool. So yeah, it is cool. Um, so yeah, it is free. If you need it to be free, it is free. Um, I actually have a friend who... I met at this treatment center and he was an alcoholic and he was doing all kinds of injections and pills that if you drink, when you take this pill, it would literally stop your heart and like spending thousands of dollars on, on treatments to not drink and just didn't believe the AA worked. And I got a message from him a few months after we met in Tennessee He's like, guess what I do now? And I thought he was going to be like, I get my whole blood flushed out and blow, whatever. Yeah. I thought he was going to have some new state of the art something. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what do you do now? And he's like, I go to AA meetings. He's like, it costs me a dollar now to stay sober and I'm good. Like they yeah. work. It works. And okay. So I'm, I, I want to ask a question really fast. Someone who asked, is it really free? I don't know their situation, but let's pretend that, th- that you're giving advice to someone who thinks I can't afford to get clean Mm -hmm. and let's pretend this person is saying, is it really free? What would you tell someone who is struggling about that first walk into AA or whatever? Like what would your advice be to them about money? Like how to no about, about doing it. 
Like, let's pretend, I don't know who asked this or whatever, but let's pretend for the people out there that are listening that are thinking, there's no way I can, or, you know, and it doesn't have to be this long, amazingly beautiful answer. But if, if you had me sitting in front of you and I say, okay, you don't know this, but I drink two bottles a night and I don't know where to start and I feel stupid and I have to go. What would you say? Just go, just, Mm -hmm. you know, just go, just Just make yourself go. Mm -hmm. Download the app, look it up and go. Yeah. And commit. Yeah. And okay. every meeting that I ever went to, I, you know, I never felt like, oh, they all know each other and like, I don't fit in here. See, because that's the normal human way. I, I mean, I do that now and I'm pretty outgoing. I can go, but I go into the room still going, oh my gosh, it's a click. I don't know. You mm-hmm. know, like I said, when I met you and so everybody's welcoming, just show up. People will welcome you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And they love, they love seeing new people. They really do. Yeah. You know, and you're going to get there and you're going to see the regulars and then before you, want you know the it, you're going to be right? a regular. Yeah. yeah. You want the regulars because yeah. they've walked the walk ahead of you. Yeah. Okay. And as far as being able to afford treatment, you know, I think, I think people look at what I did and say like, well, you spent a thousand dollars a day to get help. And you're telling me I can do it for a dollar a day. So that must mean your thing worked better. Like I was, I was, you know, another AA term is receiving the gift of desperation. Like where you really feel thankful for your rock bottom. Sure. And I, I, I needed something to kind of catapult me into. You needed a shot of adrenaline steroids to go. Yeah. But you know, I, if you need treatment, you like, I would say you got to chase your recovery the same way you chase your drug, chase your high, chase your whatever. Because there's nothing that would have stopped me from buying wine when I was deep in my addiction. No budget plan, no cutoff from my husband. No, I would have found a way to get drunk. And you have to find a way to stay sober. And, you know, and you don't have to go to expensive treatment. You know, you and don't you can have show to go up and not inpatient. even donate, right? Right. Like yeah. if you're really that destitute. No one watches you. Okay. Nobody. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, you've, you've talked about helping clients with addiction. What is your job? Have we not talked about our jobs? We really have. We've like tippy toed around it. You know, we've yeah. talked about the inner child work that you do and the life coaching that I do, but we really haven't talked about it. Yeah. So I went to school, um, and I learned biokinesiology, which is muscle testing, and I do something that is called integrative processing. And um, I just have clients who come to me with whatever it is. Like, it can be relationship stuff, self-esteem stuff, career, finances, addiction, whatever, parenting, all the things. And we, what I specialize in is in age regression work. So it's finding what you're struggling with right now and then and then using biokinesiology to find an age of origination where a belief system was developed where you started to think this thing about yourself whether it be because your caretakers in childhood made you feel that way or you were abused in childhood or you had a teacher that made you think that you were done whatever it is um And I just do like guided imagery where we're like kind of role playing, going through past life things and then, uh, neuro past life things, but past childhood things. I just wanted to clarify. She doesn't work on your dad or any of that. (laughs) (laughs) And then, uh, neuro linguistic programming, which is 
pretty similar to EMDR. Yep. So it's just kind of rewiring the the way you you think about things, the way yeah. you and it doesn't actually, change your experience, but it can change the way that you remember the experience. Right. And you and I are both getting certified on that as well. Yeah. Yep. Um and then just yeah, just a lot of like speaking out those feelings and giving those feelings like a, an image, a shape like removing something a heavy emotion and like visualizing it as an object and releasing that from you. Yeah. And so it kind of sounds hooky kooky, but it's it maybe it is a little hooky kooky, but it works and I love it. So that's what I do. Um, and I didn't mean to specialize in people with addiction, but I got, when I was in clinicals at school, I got a lot of referrals for addiction and then people would say, oh, she's helping my teenage son with a pornography oh, addiction. I and she, and I, I just kind of became the addiction specialist at the school. But it's so. probably so comforting if yeah. you share that and you have the choice to, if you share that with someone, they can see you on the other side. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm not triggered by addiction. I don't meet someone who had an affair or who has a pornography addiction or who has a drug addiction and think like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. It's like, I get it. I understand the addict brain and I can help you. I so, love that. I'm so glad you do. Um, let's see. Next question. I think there's just one more that I jotted down. Um, you said you were at this treatment center in Tennessee for seven days and it changed your life. How is it coming back to real life after something so intense? So they asked a couple more. What, what was it hard to adjust? Did you get to talk to your kids every day while you were there? How did you share it with people when you got back that you'd been gone? Uh, no, I did not get to talk to anyone. When you get yeah, to this treatment center, you have to give them your phone. Like you are off the grid. So you turn in your phone they ask you to not bring big electronics, but if you had an iPad laptop, they want you to turn in all of your electronics. So I just gave them my phone and I was off the grid for seven days. So zero outside communication. Not even talking to your husband at the time or anything? Nothing. Yeah. No, I didn't talk to anyone. I like that though, because you really are just shutting the world yeah. down. And, and you don't have to hear about like, oh, so-and-so got sick or yeah, did you right. forget about this payment at the school? Or it was just oh, like yeah. off everything was just yeah, removed. focused on healing. I love that. But that also puts you in this space of like focusing on yourself. And so re-entering into the real world can be hard. And because I didn't tell any friends or anyone from the kids school or anything that I was going, it was, it was kind of scary to come back. So I'm like, Oh, people are going to see me. And I have all these text messages when they gave me my phone back of like, where are you? Are you okay? What is, you know? So Coming back, I when I read this question, my the I'm gonna share an experience that is kind of hard to share, but I think it's it was important for me to have this experience. But anyway, they they really do talk to you about that. We had a whole class the last day there called reentry, where they give you steps on how to oh, reenter I'm into sure. your life. Yeah, and our clinical director said something, and this was. Well, I'm just going to tell the story. Um, he said, when you leave here, whether you're being picked up at the facility, whether you're driving home yourself to your family, whether you flew in, whatever, he had done the program like 30 years before, and now he worked for this company. And he said, when I left the program, 
it maybe wasn't 30 years. He wasn't that old. It had probably been 15 or 20 years. Um, he said, when I left and I saw my wife, he's like, I had a great experience. I felt the changes happening while I was here. And they say that that seven day treatment program that they set up is the equivalent of 18 to 24 months of outpatient therapy. Really? So you go in there just completely lost and overwhelmed. And in a week, when you come out of there, you're like like two two years years. ahead of just like weekly therapy, essentially. So he's like, your most important people are going to see some changes in you that are like, wow, what? what is going on here? And like, he's like, so it's very, he's like, when I, when I left here and I saw my wife for the first time, he's like, I didn't know this was going to happen, but he's like, I just started sobbing and she's like, Oh no, what's wrong with him? Is he mad at me? Is it like, he's like, it was very overwhelming for my wife to see those emotions in me. And so he said what I would, and he's like, and it's, now that I've done the program and I work here, I, it's a, it's a thing that happens to most people. So he's like, I would advise you when you guys get your phones back tomorrow, call your person, yeah. whether it's a spouse, a parent, Best friend. A whatever, yeah. whoever's gonna see you and be happy to see you. Um, let them know that you're going to probably feel some emotions when you see them. And he related it to, being on a playground and having a bunch of moms sitting around and watching their kids play. One of the kids gets hurt. Everyone sees this kid get hurt. And then that kid scans looking for their mom. Right. And they don't let the emotion come up until they make contact with their mom. And then then it's like, (gasps) yeah, yeah. He said, it's going to be like that. Like you don't realize all the stuff that you're feeling that you just need your safe person to just. And, and so The next day when I got my phone back, I called my husband at the time and just said like, Hey, a lot of stuff happened and I might not be ready to talk about it. But when I see you in LA at the airport, I'm probably going to cry. It's probably just, I'm just, I just need you to let me just feel whatever I feel. And, you know, he was very understanding and like, okay, thanks for telling me that. And anyway, I flew home the next day and when I saw him, I didn't feel anything. I didn't cry. I didn't. Wow. And I kind of was like, no, I told him I was going to cry and it's safe to cry now. So go ahead. You're like, go ahead. Yeah. It was a weird thing because I fully expected that I would just release this like, yeah. Oh my gosh, what an experience. And, and I didn't. And I think that was, and I never cried. I never cried around him. I didn't share much about the experience with him. And, um, I think for me, that was a, a really telling moment because I am a very emotional person and I, I love connecting with people. And so to have it be my spouse and be like, Oh no, I was like, who's my safe person? Who, who is it then? If it's not him, you know, and, and that's when I really realized how isolated I'd been living for the previous 10 years. And, um, and so it was, and two hours after I got home, he left on a business trip. So I didn't have That's any. That's crazy in itself. You'd yeah. think he would have stuck around. Yeah. So he left and then he was, he was only gone for two or three days. And so then, you truly got injected alone with the kids and he was gone. My mom, my mom was there to help him with the kids while I was gone. Yeah. So she was there for a couple more days. And then when he got home from his business trip, 
he and I had to fly to Seattle for a funeral. So it was like we saw each other. I didn't he feel left. any emotions. He left, came back, fly to Flew Seattle. To, yeah. So we had a couple days alone in Seattle. Did you cry at the funeral? So, Did that help? <laughs> no. <laughs> like it was, it was like, I'm eventually going to feel it. I'm eventually going to have my safe moment yeah. where it's like, okay, me and him alone in Seattle for a couple of days. I'm going to share and open up and cry. And, and I tried to, um, I remember sitting at breakfast one time with him at the hotel in Seattle and I was trying to share with him cause it was, it was in Tennessee where I realized I was a codependent and I'd always been a codependent, but I didn't know the definition of codependency. Yeah, it's and true. When you learn what it is, it's like, Oh man. Well, codependent sounds like you don't know how to function without anybody. Right. That's what I assumed it always was. But what codependency is, is the need to be needed. Yes. And so it's making sure everyone, it's, it's self-abandonment. It's making sure everyone else is okay and abandoning your own needs. And I, and they, they say now, you know, I've heard this a million times now, if you scratch this, scratch the surface of an alcoholic, you're going to find a codependent underneath. Oh wow. So it all started to make sense. So I was talking to him a lot about how I was codependent and how I was going to stop being a people pleaser and stop taking care of other people and abandoning myself. And I was really feeling passionate about learning about this. And we were sitting at breakfast and he's like, this whole codependency talk is getting a little old. And I was like, wow, yeah, you're not, I can't, you're not that person. I'm so sorry. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know why I'm sharing that, but it was all just kind of the re-entry sh- shock. You just don't know what it's going to be like. And yeah. so I pretty much still stayed off the grid for about a month. I had deleted social media before I went to Tennessee and I left it off of my phone for the entire rest of the month. And, um, and I just slowly came back into the real world and never, never cried to anyone. And that's where I, that's where I realized how isolated I was, how I'd become kind of just this robot, just going through the motions. And so it was a lot of just like really digging even deeper into how how I got so far away from human interaction and connecting and understanding myself and just became completely dependent on a substance to be my thing that I connected with and then being without that brought everything to the surface and it was it was a lot of work um so so anyway I don't I don't know if I answered all the questions on that one, but, um, those were great questions. I, I stopped hanging out with my group of friends, um, very, very often just because it was kind of like one of those things where I was so, so a different person. I really, you know, and they, they tell you at this program, they're like, you're going to experience a two degree shift. And I love this analogy. And I think it, it's not just intense recovery programs like this. It's like, if you can have anything happen in your life where you, you change your trajectory just a little bit. Like they said, you're, you're experiencing a two degree shift at this program. When you get home, you're going to get back to like the office and the kids and the mundane stuff of life. And it's going to feel like Very maybe this didn't help me. Yeah. But that two-degree shift at the starting point's not going to feel very different. But if you're in an airplane and they change yep. their trajectory Each by day. two degrees, yep. their final destination is going to be so far off I from the original. And, and my life is. I mean, yeah. my, my life now is so far from where it was. And it was. It was that two-degree shift that started in me that changed 
Do you look back and sometimes feel like it's a, it was a lifetime ago? Yeah. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And I don't. Even though it was only four years. I mean, because four years is not really a ton. Right. It's really not. But it feels like a whole lifetime ago. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. It it is. It's It's a different person. It's a different time in my life. Yeah, Yeah. 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 So. Well, I'm glad, anyway. I'm glad you are four years clean. It's been great to hear your journey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's a good life. Yeah. You know, a lot of hard stuff, but I, I'm really thankful for all of it. And I am not a toxic positivity person. No. But I do, I do feel like everything I went through has a purpose and everything that every person that I've talked to who I've shared my story with, like. I appreciate those opportunities because I think that there's, there's a reason yeah. for it all. And it is. We all have our shit. All of yeah. it's different, but it makes us who we are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad so, you were able to get clean. And for anybody who's listening, please go to the resources that Andrea shared either on this podcast, being Alcoholics Anonymous or whatever, or on our previous episode, uh, a stay at home mom's journey through addiction, addiction. and recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, thank you for all of, all of you who sent in questions and I think that's a wrap for today. Yeah. Yeah, It was fun talking. It was fun to hear from people. So thank you for the feedback and the support and we will see you next week. Bye guys.